Welcome to Music for Life, exploring the purpose and value of music to humanity's enrichment. I'm your host, Ryan Malone. This is a recording of the London Mozart players playing a piece by Mozart. But not Wolfgang Amadeus, the famous Mozart everyone knows, but his father, Leopold Mozart. We're hearing the first movement of Leopold's Symphony in D. Today on Music for Life, we will explore composers whose fathers or sons were also composers. In our Sounds of Scripture segment, we will discuss the handful of musical father-son teams recorded in the Bible. And in our Classroom Corner segment, I have some tips for the less musical or non-musical parents and how they can help in their children's music lessons and what they should listen for to know if their children are getting the most out of their practice sessions. Today on Music for Life, Fathers and Sons. Franz Josef Haydn, though he never had children himself, was known as Papa Haydn. The nickname began when court musicians who worked under Haydn referred to him as their papa, not only because he was older than they were, but because they had great affection for him. Papa Haydn was readily willing and available to give advice as well as musical direction. From there, many of his students began referring to him as that as well, including Mozart, whom he later taught, albeit briefly, Referred to also as the father of the symphony or father of the string quartet, he has been regarded as Papa for his role in the history of classical music as well. But aside from figurative fathers, are literal father-son composer duos we see throughout history, musical fathers who had a tremendous impact on their sons who then grew up to become great composers and musicians themselves. In the words of Felix Mendelssohn's father, Abraham, Formerly, I was my father's son. Now, I am my son's father. Before we explore this idea throughout standard music history, let's begin with our Sounds of Scripture segment, where we survey the Bible's many references to music for a longer-sweeping historical perspective on our episode's theme. The Bible is full of father-son teams, fathers and sons being tied together by occupation or duty— Most obvious is the New Testament's continual reference to the father and son, as in the God realm. In the Old Testament, there is the dynasty of kings in Judah, and even the lineage of the high priest operated as a dynasty of sons. Musically speaking, the Bible references a handful of father-son teams in this context as well. The most famous and explicit reference to a father and son who were both composers would have to be that of David and Solomon, kings of Israel. The biblical record attributes more than half of the book of Psalms to David's authorship, and when it came to his son Solomon, 1 Kings 4.32 says he wrote 1,005 songs, most notably the book Song of Songs. But that is an example of a father and son who are both composers in the strictest sense of our discussion today, but the Bible also includes a few other references to fathers and sons who were both employed in the musical arts in general. Certainly included in that group would be the Levitical musicians named in the biblical record who passed along their musical training to their offspring. Now, some musicians in the Bible are identified as the son of, 
which doesn't necessarily indicate the dad was musical. It merely was a way of identifying in the historical record which person they were. But one account that mentions the children of a certain biblical musician and in a musical context is found in 1 Chronicles 25. Verse 4 lists 14 sons of Haman, H-E-M-A-N. Haman was one of David's main Levitical musicians. Then verse 5 says, All these were the sons of Haman, the king's seer, in the words of God, to lift up the horn. And God gave Haman 14 sons and three daughters. And if it's still questionable whether or not they continued in the musical occupation of their father, the next verse clarifies it. All these, and that would include sons and daughters, were under the hands of their father for song in the house of the eternal with cymbals, psalteries, and harps for the service of the house of God, according to the king's order to Asaph, Yeduthun, and Haman. You can see elsewhere in the Bible that Haman was the grandson of Samuel, the prophet who was instrumental, if you'll pardon the pun, in training many of the Levitical musicians who would eventually serve under King David. So there's a grandfather-grandson musical team in one sense. The other two prominent Levitical musicians mentioned right there in that verse in the musical administration under David were Asaph and Yeduthun. Earlier in that same passage of Scripture, we see that the six sons of Yeduthun, according to verse 3, were under the hands of their father Yeduthun, who prophesied with a harp to give thanks and to praise the Eternal. And in the verse prior to that, we see the four sons of Asaph also being under the hands of their father, who prophesied according to the order of the king. All three of these men had sons who continued to serve prominently under the next king of Israel, Solomon. When Solomon had finished building the first temple, 2 Chronicles 5.12 shows who were the musicians involved in the dedication ceremony. It reads, Also the Levites, the singers, all of them of Asaph, of Haman, of Yeduthun, with their sons and their brethren, arrayed in white linen, having cymbals and psalteries and harps, stood at the east end of the altar, and with them 120 priests sounding with trumpets. How poetic, in fact, that these sons of David's musicians served the son of David. How poetic that not only were David and Solomon an example of father and son both involved in shaping their nation's music, but that the musical staff for each king was comprised of fathers and sons respectively. Continuing through history, one of those Levitical lines continued to produce more musicians, sons of sons of sons of sons of Asaph. It was a descendant of Asaph who convinced King Jehoshaphat that they would not need to fight the approaching enemy alliance. Instead, the nation sent singers to the front lines of the Judaic army, at which point it says that God miraculously destroyed Judah's foes. Later, when King Josiah restored true worship in the nation around the time of Passover, he set up the Levitical order as it had been done under David. 2 Chronicles 35.15 says the singers in that order were the sons of Asaph. And then even later, after Judah returned from Babylonian captivity in the days of Zerubbabel, Ezra records that the musicians who performed at the dedication of the Second Temple Foundation were the sons of Asaph. That can be found in Ezra 3 verse 10. Finally, in Nehemiah's day, it says in Nehemiah 11.22 that of the sons of Asaph, the singers were over the business of the house of God. Nehemiah specifically mentions a singer named Madaniah and a trumpet-playing priest named Zechariah and traces both of these men back to the father of their line, Asaph. 
We know Asaf took his job both as musician and father quite seriously and the need to pass on this legacy to his sons. For it was he himself who wrote in one of his epic psalms, Psalm 78, and this is from verses 3 through 6, I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, showing to the generation to come the praises of the Eternal, and His strength, and His wonderful works that He has done, that they should make them known to their children, that the generation to come might know them, even the children who should be born, who should arise and declare them to their children. This has been Sounds of Scripture. You are listening to Music for Life. I'm Ryan Malone. This is KPCG. Today's episode is titled Fathers and Sons, and in it we are exploring some of the great father-son composer duos of music history. In a previous episode, we explored composers whose original career paths were that of becoming lawyers, many due to their fathers not wanting them to go into the field of music. Some fathers even forbade their sons to do music. But today we'll see the other side of that, fathers who themselves were composers and who in most cases encouraged this skill in their sons. Let's begin our exploration of this subject in the Baroque era, or the time period defined usually as the late 17th and early 18th century. A famous father-son composer duo of the early Baroque era was Alessandro and Domenico Scarlatti whose musical influence we can see throughout history. We have discussed the son, Domenico Scarlatti, on previous episodes due to his prolific output of keyboard music. He is most famous for the 555 keyboard sonatas he wrote. He lived from 1685 to 1757, and today he is regarded as one of the founders of modern keyboard technique, and his one-movement sonatas are viewed as cornerstones of the piano repertoire. Domenico's father, Alessandro, was known more for his prolific output of vocal music. In addition to several serenades and madrigals, Alessandro wrote over 100 operas and nearly 700 chamber cantatas. Remember, a cantata, as we mentioned in an episode last season, is literally translated to be sung. It describes a vocal work sung in a smaller setting than an opera. It's somewhat of a mini-opera, you could say, or mini-oratorio. As pertains to opera, Alessandro helped establish the conventions of opera seria, or serious opera. Many say that it is with Alessandro Scarlatti that modern opera begins. Arias from Scarlatti's operas have formed the cornerstone for the solo vocal repertoire. Several of them are found in a book lovingly referred to by voice students as The 24 Hits, or 24 Italian Art Songs and Arias, as published by G. Shermer, and a staple in any young vocal student's supply of scores. Four of those 24, in fact, belong to Alessandro Scarlatti. Let's hear mezzo-soprano Cecilia Bartoli, pianist Jörg Fischer, in one of those. Here is Oce Sate di Piagarmi. Oh, no. 
Cecilia Bartoli sang O Cesate di Piagarmi from the 1683 opera Pompeo by Alessandro Scarlatti. Today we are discussing composers whose fathers or sons were also composers. Alessandro Scarlatti, famous for his vocal music, was father to Domenico Scarlatti, who became famous for his keyboard music. Domenico actually received the majority of his musical training from his family members. His father in particular had the greatest influence on him musically. Domenico was born in 1685, the same year as the era's most famous composers, Handel and Bach. The Bach family was known for its musical genius during the latter Baroque era. The famous composer Johann Sebastian Bach not only had a musical father himself, but Sebastian became the father of musical children, several of which went on to be famous composers. J.S. Bach's father, Johann Ambrosius Bach, was a court trumpeter and director of the town musicians in Eisenach. He also taught his son, J.S. Bach, how to play the violin and instructed him on the basics of music theory. However, the legacy left from Johann Sebastian Bach and four of his sons, who became composers themselves, had a more historically significant impact than the relationship between J.S. Bach and his own father. The eldest son of J.S. Bach, Wilhelm Friedemann Bach, W.F. Bach, I guess you could say, received special attention from his father, who nurtured his son's musical potential. His father had written him a graded collection of keyboard studies titled Klavierbuchlein for Wilhelm Friedemann Bach. The intensive musical training Friedemann Bach had received from his father led to his employment as an organist, but carried on as a great improviser and composer himself. And before we discuss J.S. Bach's impact on three other of his sons, let's listen to an example from Wilhelm Friedemann Bach. This is the third and final movement of his Symphonia in D major, performed by the Akademie für Alte Musik Berlin under Stefan May.
That was the Akademie für Automusik Berlin under Stefan May. In that recording of the Symphonia in D Major, the third and final movement by Wilhelm Friedemann Bach, the eldest son of the famous Johann Sebastian Bach. The father-son composer team was not just shared between J.S. Bach and Wilhelm, though. We'll explore a few other examples. And though J.S. Bach was a Baroque-era composer, we're really hearing music from the early classical era by exploring these examples from J.S. Bach's sons. The second son of J.S. Bach also went on to become a well-respected musician and famous composer because of the training he received as a boy. That was Carl Philipp Emanuel Bach, often shortened to just C.P.E. Bach, whom we discussed at length on a previous episode. The famous Mozart once stated of C.P.E. Bach, He is the father, we are the kids. On top of composing more than 300 keyboard works, he became the foremost clavier player in all of Europe after receiving his law degree, which you might recall from that previous episode. C.P.E. Bach possessed a profound musical understanding after receiving specialized training from his father. He received a great deal of help from his father on his first few works as a young composer. In that last episode, we heard a choral work from later in his output. Let's hear something he wrote in his 30s. Most of his earlier works were keyboard works. Here's Michael Rischa on the piano with the Leipziger Kammer Orchestra with conductor Morten Schuld Jensen in the first movement of the keyboard concerto in D minor.
So that was pianist Michael Risha with the Leipziger Kammer Orchestra under Morten Schuljensen in the first movement of the keyboard concerto in D minor by Carl Philipp Emanuel Bach, or CPE Bach, second son of the famous Johann Sebastian Bach. We are talking about composers whose fathers or sons were also composers, and one can find a handful of these pairs just by using J.S. Bach and his relationship with his sons. C.P.E. Bach was not only a great composer in the sense of carrying on the family legacy from dad, he also did much to preserve and promote his father's legacy as a composer. C.P.E. contributed to the publication of his father's four-part chorales, staged some of his works, and many of Dad's works that were never published were carefully preserved by C.P.E. Clearly, having worked closely with his father, C.P.E. Bach understood the special nature of his father's work on a level that most did not at the time. It wasn't until the time of Mendelssohn in the early to mid-1800s that J.S. Bach received the recognition as composer that we all now believe he initially deserved. C.P.E. Bach had a heavy hand in trying to not only popularize his father's work in his day, but to preserve it for the future. Two other sons of J.S. Bach, those from his second marriage, also became noteworthy composers. Johann Christoph Friedrich Bach, J.C.F. Bach, he grew up to be an outstanding virtuoso on the harpsichord. The 1911 Encyclopedia Britannica states, he was an industrious composer whose work reflects no discredit on the family name. The other Bach son was Johann Christian Bach, the youngest son of J.S. Bach's family. J.S. Bach was already 50 years old by the time that J.C. was born. But despite their distinct differences in compositional style, it is clear that his father instructed him in music until the time of Dad's death, when J.C. was only 15. We're going to hear one of his symphonies. This is the third and final movement of the symphony in G minor. Here is Simon Standage conducting the Academy of Ancient Music.
You are listening to Music for Life. I'm your host, Ryan Malone. This is KPCG. In today's episode, we are exploring some of the great father-son composer duos of music history. That was a piece by Johann Christian, or J.C. Bach, as we often say, the Allegro Molto movement, or the third movement, of his Symphony in G Minor, Opus 6, Number 6. We heard a recording of the Academy of Ancient Music under Simon Standage. J.C. Bach was the youngest son of the famous J.S. Bach, who fathered about 20 children, four of whom became famous composers. J.S. Bach would be classified as a composer of the Baroque era, though J.C. Bach, half a century younger than his father, would certainly be classified as a composer of the classical era. The classical era gives another famous father-son composer team, that of Leopold and Wolfgang Mozart. Wolfgang Mozart has become famous throughout music history and throughout the world. Even his father Leopold once called Wolfgang the miracle which God let be born in Salzburg. Leopold dedicated his life to supporting his son's talent. Leopold started Wolfgang at age three on a strict program of composition and performance. As a skilled musician himself, Leopold was well qualified to teach his son. We talked about Leopold's many musical accomplishments on a previous episode. But more than just being a skilled musician, he also was an accomplished music educator, producing a book on violin instruction the same year that Wolfgang was born. This book was used as the standard for decades. And what many may not be aware of, Wolfgang's early compositions cannot be entirely attributed to himself. Early manuscripts indicate that Leopold would not allow anyone to see Wolfgang's compositions until he, Dad, had corrected them. His father taught Wolfgang the usual method of composition, that of copying, arranging, and imitating the works of other composers. Mozart's first four piano concerti, which he composed at age 11, contain no new music from him, but music that he borrowed from the composers whom he was studying. After a decade and a half of intensive, expert musical training from his father, Wolfgang began producing the material he has become famous for today. Let's hear one of those early piano concerti that Wolfgang wrote. Again, a piano concerto is a work for solo piano and orchestra. This is the first movement of the first piano concerto. Pianist Murray Pariah performs with the English Chamber Orchestra.
pianist Murray Pariah and the English Chamber Orchestra performed Piano Concerto No. 1, the first movement, by an 11-year-old Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. It was believed to be written with a lot of help from Dad and with very little original material, more as an exercise in how to compose, as encouraged by Wolfgang's father, Leopold. We play a lot of compositions by Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart on this program, as one might recognize in our theme music. We even have played some of Leopold Mozart's music, as we did at the beginning of this episode. But that there was possibly an example of more of a collaborative effort between father and son. So that was an example from the classical era. A famous father-son composer team from the Romantic era would be the Johann Strausses. Johann Strauss Sr. was often referred to as the father of the waltz. The elder Strauss passed on the legacy to his firstborn son, Strauss Jr., and like father, like son, the son was referred to as King of the Waltz. Strauss Sr. became one of the most well-loved and best-known dance composers in Vienna. The composer Hector Berlioz once said of him, Vienna without Strauss is like Austria without the Danube. Early on in his career, he joined a local orchestra, which he later left to join a string quartet known as the Lahner Quartet. The string quartet played various Viennese waltzes and German dances when it finally expanded to a small string orchestra in 1824. Strauss Sr. eventually became the deputy conductor of the orchestra, and by 1825 he broke away from that orchestra and formed his own. Writing chiefly dance music for the orchestra, he contributed a lot to the development of the waltz. Through his travels and tours around Europe with his Strauss Orchestra, he gained great popularity and even had the opportunity to perform in front of Queen Victoria in 1838. And before we talk about his son, let's listen to this piece by Johann Strauss Sr. Though called the father of the waltz, he may be most well known for his Radetzky March. Here it is performed by the Vienna Philharmonic with conductor Willy Boskowski. That was the Radetzky March with the Vienna Philharmonic and conductor Willy Boskowski. And that was a piece by Johann Strauss Sr., also called the Father of the Waltz. Though that wasn't a waltz, but a march, Johann was not only Father of the Waltz, but also Father of Johann Strauss Jr., who has been nicknamed himself the King of the Waltz. 
Now, you might think that these fathers who were composers thrust this musical lifestyle and career on their children. But that's not always the case. And in the instance of J.S. Bach and his son C.P.E. Bach, Sebastian encouraged his son to pursue a degree in law, as we mentioned in that previous episode, so that people would take him more seriously. And in the case of Johann Strauss Sr. and his son, he didn't want Junior pursuing a musical career. He knew the life was tough, given the perils and exhaustion of traveling, and oftentimes the financial uncertainty. In fact, when the elder Strauss found out that his son was studying the violin with a member of his company, he was extremely disappointed. When Strauss the Younger, as he was sometimes referred to, was 17, his parents divorced. And ironically, living only with his mother enabled him to follow in his father's footsteps and openly embrace life as a musician. Soon after, he received a job conducting a band in a Viennese restaurant while he was still a teenager. Despite a bit of tension in their relationship, and the relationship also became somewhat competitive, Strauss Jr. recognized and frequently verbalized his great admiration for the works of his father. Strauss II went on to become renowned for his development of the Viennese waltz, just as his father had excelled in this dance style. He wrote many famous waltzes, Tales from the Vienna Woods, Wine, Women, and Song, Morning Papers, but his most famous would be On the Beautiful Blue Danube, written in 1867. We're hearing a reimagined arrangement of this well-known work performed by the Anderson Row piano duo. Composer and pianist Greg Anderson arranged this for their album, Reimagine. That was the Anderson Row piano duo performing Greg Anderson's epic arrangement of the famous Blue Danube Waltz by Johann Strauss Jr. Strauss Jr. was known as the Waltz King, and he was son of Johann Strauss Sr., who was known as the father of the Waltz. The two are a famous example of a father-son composer pair. Next, let's have our Classroom Corner segment, where we explore different methods and curricula for introducing young people to music. We are talking on this episode about composers whose fathers had a great deal to do with their musical development, but what about the less musical or non-musical parents? Let's talk about that today for our Classroom Corner. As a piano teacher, I encourage parents of younger children to observe the lessons so they can help the child at home throughout the week. 
Inevitably, the child advances past the point where the parent, who may not have had the same training, can even tell if they are playing the right notes or rhythms. Then there are parents who come to me on more of a consultation basis, professing themselves to be non-musical and asking what they can do to help their children get more out of the practice sessions. And it makes sense from a business perspective that if you are funding all these lessons, you want to know that your children are getting as much out of them, that you are getting a return on your investment. Well, what I tell these less musical or supposedly non-musical parents is that there are things you can listen for, even with a non-musical ear, to know if your child is practicing properly. There are two obvious things you can listen for, which are dead giveaways that the child is doing more beneficial type practicing. One is if you hear them counting aloud. This is a good thing. Now, I've done a non-scientific study and found that 100% of music students, 100%, say it is very hard to count and play at the same time. This is not an excuse, though. I would suggest that in almost every case, when a student begins a new piece, they should be counting aloud, loud enough for them to hear, and maybe even loud enough for you to hear. Doing it in their head is fraught with too many potential mistakes. They can too easily skip beats or speed up beats. Counting aloud and using their tongue muscle is a marvelous way to engage greater coordination of body and mind. Now, of course, if they're playing a wind instrument, which requires their mouth to be employed in making the sound, they should probably do something else with their body like tapping a foot, something to replicate the counting with another muscle. So those are some thoughts on counting aloud. Another thing you can listen for is... Not every piece requires the metronome, but if you hear the metronome, you can generally be assured that pretty good things are happening, and probably some great things too. The unforgiving steadiness that the metronome offers is fundamental to a student playing rhythmically, and in terms of fast passages, the only way to get our bodies to perform at top speed is to play the passage at a slow tempo, and then at a slightly faster tempo, and then a slightly faster one, and so on and so on, until you reach top speed. And the only way to effectively incrementalize this is by using the notches on the metronome. So those are two things right off the bat that you can listen for, counting aloud and the metronome going. And if you hear your child counting aloud with the metronome, you can rest assured they are doing serious work on their instruments. Perhaps a more subtle thing to listen for, only subtle compared to hearing them count or hearing a metronome, is to listen for how much material you hear them play through at a time. See, if you hear them play the piece straight through, that is, if you recognize the fact that they are playing music, This may not be the most effective use of their time, but if you hear them play a small passage over and over and over and over and over, you know they are doing serious work. Now, with these three things, I should say that it's not that they never should not count or that they never should play without the metronome or that they should never play through an entire piece for various reasons. I'm simply giving positive giveaways that they are practicing correctly. If you hear them counting... If you hear the metronome, if you hear them drilling a passage repeatedly, those are all positive signs. Again, not that the opposite of those things would never be employed. And to wrap this up, one thing that might help determine whether or not what they are doing is productive is ask them. What I mean is you should be able to walk by your child while he or she is practicing at any time and ask, what are you doing right now? Every moment they are playing something, they should be consciously thinking of a goal, something they are trying to accomplish better, some specific achievement. 
The goal should be specific. I'm playing through this passage again to get this fingering right. Or I'm repeating this passage until I quit playing an F natural and rather play an F sharp without thinking about it. Those are good answers. The standard, I'm playing through the entire piece and seeing how it's going, is not a good answer. I'm perfecting this piece. Eh, That's not really a specific enough answer. Asking your child these kinds of questions can actually keep them focused and productive. You, as the parent, who are with them more than the teacher, can simply help them be goal-oriented and achievement-motivated in their practices. And finally, I might just say, personally, as a trained musician who has a wife as a trained musician, we have children involved in music lessons, and our training in music isn't necessarily what's motivating them to become better musicians. In fact, I believe our greatest strength as parents should be that of pushing our children in a positive and productive way to accomplish more. That has nothing to do with the kind of training we have musically. This has been Classroom Corner. You are listening to Music for Life. I'm your host, Ryan Malone. This is KPCG. In today's episode titled Fathers and Sons, we have explored some of the great father-son composer duos of music history. We looked mainly at J.S. Bach and his four sons who made a name for themselves as composers. Before that, we talked about Alessandro and Domenico Scarlatti. We looked at Father Leopold and son Wolfgang Mozart. We also looked at the famous father-son pair of Viennese waltz composers, Johann Strauss Sr. and Jr. My special thanks goes out today to Armstrong College alumna Alicia Lancaster, who largely wrote this episode. Remember, you can find this program on iTunes and SoundCloud, and you can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Music for Life PCG. We love those comments, likes, retweets, and ratings. Finally, let's have our dessert for today, where we hear an example from the popular or folk tradition to end the program, a famous example in the genre of country-western music of both a father and son employed in the music industry would be Hank Williams Sr. and Hank Williams Jr. Hank Williams Sr. was an influential singer-songwriter from the mid-20th century, recognized as the king of country music. He was inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame, the Country Music Hall of Fame, and even the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. His son, known as Hank Williams Jr., began his singer-songwriter career imitating his father's style. In fact, Hank Jr.'s first album, released in 1964, consisted of him singing songs also released by his father. One of those songs was the 1951 hit, Hey Good Lookin'. Here's the original Hank Williams Sr. version for our dessert today. Say hey, good lookin', what you got cookin'? How's about cooking something up with me? Hey, sweet baby, don't you think maybe we could find us a brand new recipe? I got a hot rod Ford and a two-dollar bill, and I know a spot right over the hill. Soda pop and the dancing spree So if you want to have fun Come along with me Say, hey, good looking What you got cooking How's about cooking Something up with me
smoking. I know I've been cooking. How's about keeping steady company? I'm gonna throw my date book over the fence and buy me one for five or ten cents. I'll keep it till it's covered with age. Cause I'm writing your name down on every page. Say, hey, good looking. What you got cooking? How's about cooking something up with me? You have been listening to Music for Life, a production of KPCG 101.3 on the FM dial in Edmond, Oklahoma. From the Herbert W. Armstrong College campus, I'm Ryan Malone. Thanks for joining me.